Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Markets. I'm Pim Fox. Joining me here in the studio right now is William R. Rhodes. Bill Rhodes is the author of Banker to the World, Leadership Lessons from the Frontlines of Global Finance. He also happens to be the chief executive and president of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors. Bill, thank you very much for being here. I got to say, it's almost like a coincidence because, of course, today we're awaiting news about the NAFTA renegotiation talks that have been taking place over the weekend in in Montreal. And you have a direct relationship to uh, NAFTA as it was put together. I wonder if you could just tell people about it. Well, first of all, it's always great to be with you here, Pim. I worked on the original NAFTA with Rod Rockefeller, uh, Nelson's oldest son, who passed away a few years ago. But uh, we worked very hard on that because we saw a lot of the synergies possible between the three countries. It obviously had to be updated. So much has happened in the area of technology uh, that uh, the updating is, is very necessary. And the negotiations were going to be tough, we knew, because uh, the present administration announced that they were very unhappy with the trade deficit with Mexico and the smaller one with Canada. Uh, although there are a lot of uh, pessimistic uh, estimates on what's going to happen. I think you have uh, a very good group of people negotiating it. Uh, Lighthizer has a uh, has a, a record as a negotiator. He's a tough negotiator. This is Robert Lighthizer, yes. the U.S. Uh, the lead U.S. Exactly. negotiator. Exactly. And Christopher Freeland's an old friend. She used to be the uh, <clears throat> uh, the uh, editor uh, in the United States for the Financial Times. She's very smart and. Um, she knows what she's doing, and Guajardo does it from Mexico, although really Vita Garay is the one who's the, the foreign minister who really is on top of that. So you have three very tough, smart people negotiating it, uh, and uh, I think at the end of the day, it'll happen, but I think you'll need a couple of more sessions uh, before we get through it. Uh, as you know, it's a whole content thing on automobiles, etc., and this is sort of a set piece for the whole trade policy of the Trump administration going forward. This is why I think it's so important and why the negotiations have been so tough. Why Why do you think that, the, is it because there's nothing that can be offered uh, because then you would look weak? Or what, I mean, if ultimately they're going to strike some kind of deal, why wouldn't they just do this rather than putting everyone through all this Sturm und Drang? Well, I think each side uh, wants to show that they are negotiating in a tough fashion. And the Canadians just agreed to, uh, I think, uh, a major concession on the content side, which I think the Mexicans uh, said they'd look at and buy on automobiles, which I think is, is, is one of the key problems. So at the end of the day, in spite of all the bluster and threats and everything like that, uh, I think you'll eventually get a deal, but it'll go right up to the last minute. I think you'll probably need another couple of sessions before uh, it occurs because I think you need to <clears throat> take a look at what President Trump said at the World Economic Forum, which, as you know, I went to for 25 years. And um, he basically said that he wanted to do that deal, but obviously on his terms. But then he brought up for the first time that he might even be open on taking a look at TPP again, which surprised everyone, which in my mind is the correct thing to do. 
All right. So having learned this, and uh, well, maybe just give us your thoughts on the president's uh, speech uh, in Davos. Well, I think he handled himself very well. I wasn't there. <clears throat> but what I read about it, and he used the teleprompter, and he was very careful to say that um, <clears throat> the United States um, is, um, uh, you know, first, uh, America first, but not alone, which I think was the point that he wanted to get through to them that we're not trying to isolate ourselves from the rest of the world. So I think as far as the speech goes, it was well accepted, I understand, although I was not there uh, in Davos. Uh, what's very important is what he's going to say on his State of the Union. That'll be tomorrow night. Exactly. Yeah, we'll be covering that uh, live. Uh, all right, so we, we talked about NAFTA, and we are awaiting a, a press conference in, perhaps in the next hour uh, coming from Montreal about that. Does this uh, trade, uh, pu almost public negotiation that the president is conducting, is that also sending a message to the Chinese? Well, I think with China, we've got some real problems, uh, not just on the trade side. I think we have, uh, we have problems with them on North Korea because, as I've said on your program before, the only way we're going to get an agreement out of Kim Jong-un is if we get the Chinese and the Russians to a small part, but mainly the Chinese to cut off all oil and gas uh, and to implement it because they've agreed to do a lot of things, but it's not clear they're implementing it. So that's a major issue we have with China. And then we have the South China Sea issue, which is also very, very important. And then, of course, we have this whole question of, uh, of trade. And I think uh, it's going to be very difficult in the sense to achieve everything we want with the Chinese. So I think we're going to have some very tough years ahead of us dealing with China. Do you think that this is going to uh, unleash a trade war between the United States and China? Well, I, I think it depends on how China reacts uh, with Kim Jong-un on Korea. Uh, they have to show some more flexibility in the sense of being willing to really push Kim Jong-un to the negotiating table. Um, and there are a number of problems uh, that China has in addition to what we're discussing. As you know, I've been advocating, and I just did it in my recent op-ed uh, on the markets, that um, China needs to take some very tough steps to rein in shadow banking in China, to clean up the bad debts at the uh, state-owned banks, and to start moving on closing down the zombie companies in, in areas like steel, coal, and shipbuilding. Because if they don't uh, start doing that, you could have a major financial problem in China in the next couple of years. Bill Rhodes, he is the president and chief executive, William R. Rhodes, global advisors. Let's turn our attention now to the world of technology with Mark Gurman. He is our technology reporter for Bloomberg. And the topic is Apple. And uh, Mark, you know, many people don't recognize that Apple is uh, really in the chip business as much as it is in the phone business. Can you explain? Yeah, that's exactly right. And speaking of chips, uh, the last guest mentioned they had a settlement with immersion on chips for the force touch screens and whatnot. But this story that we have today, Bloomberg Technology is focusing on the main processing engines, the system on a chips, the wireless components used in products like the iPhone, the iPad, the Apple TV, the HomePod and the AirPods. And it's, it's a growing part of the company's overall long term strategy. 
Why did they decide to do this? What, what, what is it about the chips made by, let's say, Intel or ARM Holdings or AMD? What about those chips? Are they not good enough? They are good enough, but what Apple wants to do is sort of control the whole set. So if they don't have to work with third-party developers of chips, they can keep their plans closer to the vest. They can work on things years before they would be able to work on them with Intel and whatnot. Right now, Apple still uses Intel chips for the main processors and Macs, and Apple sort of stuck to Intel's roadmap. So whenever Intel has a new chip coming out, then Apple's able to use it. At this rate, they get to control uh, their own pace if they're building the chips themselves for their own hardware. And the uh, the result is what? That they get their custom components that process tasks that are specific to Apple products, right? Uh, track your steps, power game graphics, the face ID, also the uh, touch ID data, and the Apple Watch. Yeah, that's right. So they make components to go along with new features. And there are some cases where a third-party hardware developer for chips doesn't make components that support features that Apple wants to come out with. For example, the Touch ID and Face ID examples, the step tracking and whatnot. There, there weren't chips on the market from other chip developers that were able to be optimized for the iPhone to support those new features. So it gives an Apple a leg up to build their own stuff. Okay, but this depends then on Apple's ability to keep selling these hundreds of millions of devices every year because they're the customer. Right. So chip making is a very, very expensive game. And a lot of people ask, what is Apple doing with all this cash that they have? Well, a lot of it goes into this research and development necessary to build these chips. It's an extraordinarily expensive and long-term proposition. They work for upwards of three to four years on a specific component for a future iPhone. They're already working on the internal chips for the iPhones of 2021, 2022, even 2023, in order to get those features working properly by the time the phones ship. And so it's a very time consuming and a very expensive and a very resource intensive process. So as long as they're selling 200, 300 million devices a year, it's worth it. If not, if they're not selling that many devices, you know, there, there could become a point where it's like, why, why are they building all these chips? But I don't see that happening anytime soon. Mark, tell us about a gentleman named uh, Ronnie Shruji. Yeah, so he's the person in charge of Apple's chip-making efforts. He's the senior VP of hardware technologies. They have offices in Israel and the United States and other countries to build these processors, and he's really in charge of this endeavor to build chips. We did a nice profile of him back in 2016. I would encourage anyone uh, interested in him or the, or the chip-making abilities of Apple to take a look at that article as well. And if you were to purchase, let's say, a new iPad that'll maybe come out by the end of the year, what are you going to see in there that Apple designs? So the current iPads, they don't have a ton of internal Apple custom chips, but we're expecting this new iPad model that comes out in the fall to have at least a pair of new Apple processors, one for artificial intelligence tasks, the neural engine, which works with Face ID, so we're expecting the iPad to get Face ID, uh, but also an Apple custom graphics processor. It's called the GPU that's in the iPhone 8, the 8 Plus, and the iPhone 10, and so they'd bring it to the iPad for the first time this year. And it makes sense as a natural progression of pushing the chips to more Apple devices. And just uh, quickly, if you're wanting to buy like a Mac, uh, will you be getting those special processors uh, made by Apple? So right now there's two Macs with special processors made from Apple. They're co-processors in addition to the Intel chip. They're going to come out with at least three updated Mac models with those chips as well across 2018 we reported today.
want to thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, Mark Gurman is our expert when it comes to all things related to technology for uh, Bloomberg News, talking about uh, Apple and its uh, chip-building desires. Turn our attention now to two different economies, the economy for urban America and rural America. And here to help us understand this is Tom Halverson. He is the president and the chief executive of CoBank, assets under management, about $125 billion, joining us from Denver. Tom, thanks very much for being on. Uh, tell us about this new report about what influences uh, rural America's economy. Well, thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, you know, there's a there's a great deal of things that influence the rural economy, and it obviously has a tremendous impact on on the rest of the economy as a whole. We've found, uh, trying to do a lot of research, that it's particularly uh, difficult to gather appropriate, timely uh, data and economic indications about what is in fact uh, going on in rural America. But we've uh, done a lot of research in that regard. Published some uh, some of it that's available to you, and what you can see is. Uh, there's quite a, a meaningful divergence on a variety of different indicators between what's happening in rural America, which hasn't been as strong over the last five to ten years, as what's been happening in uh, in uh, in the urban economy as a whole. Is is it? I mean, maybe start with misconceptions. I mean, you know, if you mention the rural uh, economy of the United States, you may get people saying, "Well, it's all agriculture and mining." Not so. No, it's not so. There's actually a lot uh, going on in in uh, rural America, and in fact, uh, the predominant uh, portion of the population obviously lives in in urban America, but they often don't understand fully, or perhaps potentially take uh, for granted, just how reliant their quality of life and their economic uh, well-being uh, depends on what goes on in rural America, whether it be the agricultural economy, but uh, food and fiber that we all rely on comes from rural America, as does our water, other natural resources, uh, and predominantly a lot of the uh, electricity and other things that are ubiquitous needs of, uh, of our quality of life these days, as well as our economic activity is also predominantly coming from, uh, from rural America. Well, you mentioned in the report that in Iowa, agricultural products only account for about 10% of the state economy. But then you have to figure in things like the equipment manufacturers, agricultural lending. That changes the picture. It does indeed. There is a, a wide array and diversity of economic activity uh, in rural America. And obviously they're all uh, very highly correlated uh, and, and interdependent. Uh, but uh, it's much more diverse in the ability with modern telecommunications uh, uh, capabilities, for example, to envisage economic activity occurring in rural America uh, that couldn't have happened 10, 15, 20 years ago, whether it be uh, in, uh, in the communications industry itself or in the healthcare industry or other things where, where distance uh, has a lot, more, a lot less impact on cost uh, as a result of communications innovation. What about wages in rural America? Uh, albeit it's different for, you know, whether you're in the agriculture sector or in education and health, but give us an update on wages. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting to note that there, in addition to technological uh, uh, differences between, you know, broadband penetration or any other sort of indicators you want to look at, uh, diverging between urban and rural, there's also a significant diversion in, in wage growth appreciation 
uh, unemployment levels, basic labor market conditions in rural America over the last five to ten years uh, have significantly diverged from what's uh, happening uh, in uh, in urban America. Uh, substantially more jobs have been created in urban America than in rural America since the financial crisis nearly a decade ago, and there's been much more wage appreciation uh, as a result uh, uh, as well in, in, in urban America. So in, in certain respects, uh, the rural parts of the country and rural job creation, uh, job opportunities, uh, wage opportunities and the like have been uh, have been less robust than has been so in uh, in the populous parts of the country. What, what's your thought? I mean, we've been talking about NAFTA uh, today because of the uh, negotiations and the recent press conference in, in Montreal. Based on your uh, customer base and your experience, what's your take on the renegotiation of NAFTA? Well, it's a it's a big issue. Uh, it's a big issue for rural America in general. It's a big issue for agricultural America in particular. Uh, if you if you look at the changing trade patterns between ourselves and our NAFTA partners uh, since that agreement was put in place, the agricultural economy has been one of the predominant beneficiaries. We've substantially grown our agricultural exports to our uh, particularly uh, to, to Mexico, and therefore among our customers in uh, in the rural parts of the country, there's a fair amount of apprehension about about. Uh, the potential risks associated with uh, losing the access uh, that our uh, agricultural producers have gained through, you know, a lot of hard work over a long period of time, uh, as well as uh, as some concern about what that might uh, mean for the uh, for the future, because there obviously continues to be good growth uh, upside opportunities uh, for the agricultural economy if we can maintain uh, these advantageous uh, trading relationships. Thank you very much for being with us. Tom Halverson is the president and the chief executive of CoBank, based in Denver, helping to manage more than $125 billion of assets. All right, let's uh, turn our attention now to uh, the deal of the day, I guess you could call it, over $18 billion. Dr. Pepper Snapple being snapped up by a JAB, the uh, holding company of the Ryman family. And Ed Hammond, our deals reporter, is uh, here to tell us all about it. And Ed can be followed on Twitter at Ed Hammond NY. All right, Ed Hammond NY. They got you up early out of bed to do this one. Uh, why is this deal so important for the industry? It's important for the industry because it's counter trend, which is always kind of a nice thing to get us going. So the, the thing we've seen in, in food and beverage M&A, particularly food M&A in the last few years, has been this real pivot towards health and wellness. So every big deal you've seen done, and indeed a lot of small deals, uh, the, the real characteristic has been we're moving food into a space where you have you know much more attention on sort of healthy consumers, people not wanting to have tons of sugar and sort of high fructose stuff in their diet. This kind of isn't that. This is more what we think of as traditional sort of sugary drinks, stuff that you would go in a store and you would buy and maybe feel a little bit guilty about afterwards. You're going to buy them in a Krispy Kreme uh, store. You're going to buy them in a Panera Bread store, in a Noah, in an Einstein Noah store. Right, exactly. So the idea now is that you'll probably get some kind of uh, some kind of deal where you're going to get cheaper Dr. Peppers in your uh in your Panera store, or maybe you're going to get a free Dr. Pepper or a free Snapple with your Krispy Kreme. Either way, it's not exactly a move towards health and wellness. So from that point of view, it's interesting. The other thing that's really interesting here, and this is a huge thing for JB in, in kind of motivating to do the deal, 
is they have a big cold brew coffee business at the moment. They're entirely dependent on their coffee stores really for selling that or they get held up by the retailers. This immediately opens a channel for them to distribute their cold brew straight to stores, which is a huge market for them and something that will, I think, provide kind of instant um instant uplift for them as a can you just explain to people this cold brew coffee uh what trend? it is i don't want to say that it's a fad yet but i'll let's just say it's a trend yeah. there are kind of fads within it so like within cold brew you have like nitro coffee which is kind of cold brew on steroids and that's uh that seems to be a bit of a new york fad so cold brew is you know it's it's as far as i understand it's it's different from just iced coffee because it's actually brewed cold it takes like 12 to 15 hours you sit it on the grains the, the ground, sorry, which is slightly coarser and it brews in a different way. It means it's, it's slightly lower in acids and it tastes slightly nicer and it's not just like, you know, a drip coffee poured over rice. That was quite good, wasn't it? That was really good. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And so the idea being that now because of this acquisition, every place that you were able to go and buy Dr. Pepper or Snapple products, like right. a big grocery store chain, you're now going to be able to get your cold brew coffee onto those same shelves. Exactly. So when you go to Walmart to pick up your Dr. Pepper, you'll be able to buy like a can of Pete's cold brew, which is, that's a huge part of their business. And obviously that's a big part of this proposition for JB. Why merge these businesses together? Well, they've certainly got a nice portfolio, the Ryman family of uh, Austria, and they're adding it to it, correct? Because they own 38% of Coty mm -hmm. and 5% of Record Benckiser. Yeah, I think that there's an important thing to disentangle here. Yes, the Ryman family will be big uh, investors in this pro forma business when the merger is done. But this is also JAB Consumer Funds, which is a kind of non-Ryman family vehicle that's all outside money. So the, it's it's two bits of JAB. It's the, it's the Holding Co., which is predominantly Ryman family, but it's also the consumer business, which is not Ryman family. So you're seeing both of those investing together into this new co. Interestingly, you also have money coming in from Byron Trot, who is advising on the deal, also investing in the deal. This is a very unusual structure, something only he seems to be able to do. He did it recently with Warren Buffett on the Pilot Flying Jays deal as well. Thanks very much for being with us and uh, explaining it. I have a feeling we're going to be calling on your expertise more to learn more about this. Ed Hammond, our deals reporter for Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.